Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have one brand new movie to review for you, and the reason I only have one, well, one brand new, and the other two are semi-new, having come out in theaters over the last couple of weeks. But this film that I'm going to be reviewing for you was ironically one of the only big films to come out on Friday the 13th. And there's nothing really spooky about this film coming out on Friday, October 13th, which I think was probably a missed opportunity, particularly for the release of The Exorcist Believer. That would have been a great movie to come out on Friday the 13th, but alas, that was a missed opportunity. So I have three new movies to review for you, one of which is brand new, the other two not quite so much, but they may be new to you. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is what will undoubtedly be the biggest film of the weekend of October 13th through October 15th, 2023. And that is Taylor Swift, The Eras Tour. Now, The Eras Tour is a huge tour that's going on even to this day as I'm recording this podcast. And of course, it is Taylor Swift's concert. And she describes it as a journey through all of her musical eras. And that's actually appropriate considering that she's been a big music star now for 17 years. And she's gone through a lot of stylistic changes and some might even say personality changes. It's kind of interesting that there are some songs of hers where she seemed to completely abandon her past, like Look Look What You Made Me Do. But in this show, she plays all or almost all of her greatest hits. She's not even afraid to go back to her country music roots and get a little bit twangy here and there. But the Eras Tour, the movie, shows her big concert in August of 2023 over the course of three shows at SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California. And interestingly enough, SAG-AFTRA permitted the production to proceed amidst its 2023 strike. So good for them because it is certainly a very dynamic concert film. And of course, it shows that this is Taylor Swift's world, apparently, and we are all living in it. Although I should also say that while the Eras tour, while it's still going on, it was a huge hit this summer. It was so big that when Taylor Swift performed in Nashville, which was where she got her start in the music business, she was originally going to do two shows at Nissan Stadium, which is where the Tennessee Titans play, but she eventually added another show to that, and all three shows sold out. And we here in Nashville prepared for Taylor Swift's concert like we would prepare for a tornado. Uh, Roads were blocked off. There were people on the news who were saying, if you're going home, don't take this route. And after this certain amount of time, don't drive here because the traffic's going to be insane. And we took their word for it because, yeah, Taylor Swift might not have caused as much damage as a, as a tornado would, but yeah, she made an impact when she came here. And no doubt she had the same kind of impact when she performed at SoFi Stadium. And this film premiered at The Grove in Los Angeles on October 11th and made its way into theaters worldwide on October 13th. And I went to see the film 
at the Belcourt Theater. I could have seen it at a multiplex like AMC or Regal, but I decided to see it at Belcourt because I always have unique experiences when I go to see movies at Belcourt. Either that or I see very unique films, and I'm very glad I did. Now, being a member of Belcourt, I can usually get in without any extra cost, but this film, I actually had to pay nearly 20 bucks to see it, and I'm actually kind of glad I did because otherwise I wouldn't have anything to talk about for this show. And I'm also glad I saw it because I was curious about how the Taylor Swift concert in Nashville, in addition to other cities, went. And I know that it was a very big deal, and there are Swifties all over the world, not just all over the country, who probably killed to see this show. And honestly, I don't blame them for going out of their way. If they actually killed, yeah, I totally blame them for that. But you know exactly what I mean. But in any event, there isn't too much to say about how the concert itself is shot, other than the fact that the cinematography is quite amazing. And there are also some pyrotechnics in this film, the the use of digital enhancements that I don't exactly know were more advanced when I went to see the movie, if it was added a little bit later in post-production, or if the people in the concert actually saw that. Regardless, it was still quite a sight. For example, there's one particular shot where, in between Taylor Swift's set where undoubtedly she was changing into another outfit, and she changes outfits many times, very similar to Beyonce during her Renaissance concerts particularly the one that I saw live. That was a concert that I actually went to see, and I'm very glad I did. But there was there was one shot where all over the long runway of the stage, there was this gigantic black snake that was uh, surrounding the stage. And as I was watching this special effect happen on the screen, I did think to myself, wow, how did they do that? Not just the the, the crew who was working on this concert, but the, the people who were making the movie. That That's where I wasn't quite sure where the line between the people who were at the concert and the people who were seeing it on the big screen like I was, where that line lay. But either way, it was a very impressive special effect. And granted, I don't know if Taylor Swift exactly needs special effects, but who exactly needs them? But the the interesting thing about Taylor Swift and her stage presence, particularly when she's alone on stage, she has a very unique way to make her even big concerts seem intimate, which is not a very easy thing to do. And Taylor Swift can pull it off, arguably in this case even better than Beyonce. But I'm not saying that Taylor Swift is a better artist than Beyonce. Beyonce has... Uh, a probably more dynamic stage presence, and she also has at least 10 years over Taylor Swift. And interestingly enough, there will be another film that's going to be released in a couple of weeks of Beyonce on the Renaissance Tour, presumably in or around L.A. And while I have seen Beyonce live in concert, and that was an amazing concert to which I was very glad to actually be there, I will see Beyonce's... Uh, f- concert film on the big screen because if if it's anything like the the Taylor Swift concert on the big screen or at least seeing it in theaters it wasn't just a movie I was seeing it was an actual event 
the theater I went to was packed with Swifties. They came in their uh, Taylor Swift shirts, and and some of them were almost all of them were singing along to Taylor Swift's greatest hits, which I. I wasn't singing along to all of them, but there were some songs here and there to which you would never expect a 40-year-old film critic to sing. But yeah, I was tapping my feet uh, during some parts and singing along to We Are Never, Ever, Ever Getting Back Together, a song to which I cannot quite relate (laughs) because Taylor Swift wrote that song when she was very young and going through some uh, romantic drama that I will never go through, and I'm kind of glad because that's kind of a girl thing. But yeah, she's got a bunch of catchy songs. And there are some other songs from her previous quote-unquote eras, like, for example, the song You Belong With Me, where she's on stage singing, she wears short skirts, I wear T-shirts, she's cheer captain, and I'm on the bleachers. And she's singing this while she's wearing a short skirt. And I can guarantee you... Probably nobody at that concert actually cared, which is a testament actually to how timeless, not only timeless Taylor Swift songs are, but how she can still sing them convincingly while not exactly being the girl on the bleachers. She's gone beyond that. She will never go back to being the girl on the bleachers. But as Taylor Swift demonstrates in this movie, she doesn't exactly have to. She's come a long way from that, but... She's actually looking back in a dynamic way. Probably the Taylor, I'm not a big Taylor Swift fan. I think I respect her, and obviously she has some undeniably catchy songs. The one song that I don't like by Taylor Swift is Look What You Made Me Do. Now, I do grant you that a lot of other people love this song, but I am kind of curious that she, A, sang this song at the concert, and B, she actually did that part where she says, The old Taylor Swift can't come to the phone right now. Why? Because she's dead. But the Swifties in my um, movie theater (laughs) shouted along with that, even though the old Taylor Swift isn't exactly dead. I mean, she's bringing her back with the Eras tour. Kind of ironic, but that's just uh, nitpicky on my part. But it was actually great to be in a movie theater seeing this because... People were just as affected by Taylor Swift's songs and performances, even if they weren't at the at one of her concerts themselves. They were still dancing along. They were still waving their arms. And it was quite the event. And I try to distance myself from audiences' reactions, but in this theater, it was absolutely undeniable. It makes me more excited, actually, to see Beyonce's Renaissance Tour movie that will be coming out in a couple of weeks, and I honestly had a good time seeing this film. I think that from a cinematography perspective and maybe even a storytelling perspective, there could have actually been more shots at the beginning of the film showing some of the concert goers and maybe even interviewing some of them as well as maybe seeing a, a bit more backstage with the crew actually setting up the concert. But no matter, it's still two hours, 43 minutes of Taylor Swift that I honestly, that honestly hooked me from 
pretty much the very start, which is why I give Taylor Swift, the heiress tour, my rating of a knockout. Taylor Swift knows how to put on a great show, and it was very wise of her to hire a team of cinematographers to get this movie out in theaters, and it may actually be the best concert film of the modern era, and it may be one of the best concert films of all time, putting it up there with The Last Waltz, Stop Making Sense, and the Woodstock film. It is really that great. It's probably even greater based on the fact that it's still relevant music regardless of Taylor Swift's era. And not only does she put on a great show with her stage presence, I was also very impressed by the backup dancers that she had. Because not only could they dance really well, they also had a way of emoting their expressions almost as if they were prepared for the camera themselves. So everything Taylor Swift did for this concert, either putting it on when it wasn't filmed and most especially putting it on when she knew the cameras were on her and that her concert would be immortalized was a very wise move. So Taylor Swift put on a hell of a show and Taylor Swift, the Eras tour is a hell of a movie. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Shelter in Solitude. This is an independent film that was made on a shoestring budget and was released into select theaters on October 6th, 2013. I was a little bit late to see this film because there were other films that... I had to sort of prioritize first, but Shelter in Solitude has already made a somewhat of a big splash on the independent um, festival circuit. In fact, the lead actress in the film, Shabon Fallon Hogan, won Best Actress at the Boston International Film Festival. But I won't go down the list of awards this film has won already. I, I could, but that would probably take me all day. But it's been nominated for... Two awards, two of which it actually, uh, both of which it actually won. And this movie not only stars Siobhan Fallon Hogan, but she also produced the film and wrote the story and screenplay. It's not her feature film debut in which she's written the story and screenplay. She also wrote and starred in a film that came out in 2021, which I unfortunately missed, that was called Rushed, which was also directed by Vibike Muyasia. Which, who also directed this film. And interestingly enough, the film Rushed also co-starred Robert Patrick of Terminator 2 fame. And interestingly, in Rushed, Siobhan Fallon Hogan and Robert Patrick played husband and wife. And in this film, Shelter and Solitude, they play brother and sister. Kind of weird, but they're actors, so uh, what, what can you say? And Siobhan Fallon Hogan might not be a household name or a name that you might recognize, but if you saw her face, you could probably pinpoint at least two films in which she's acted. And she's had a prolific acting career over the course of 35 years. She was on SNL for one year from 1991 to 1992, and she was 
a player on SNL at the same time as a lot of SNL greats like Mike Myers, Dana Carvey, Phil Hartman, Jan Hooks, Adam Sandler, Chris Farley, Chris Rock, and the list goes on there. And she also played the chain-smoking bus driver in Forrest Gump, and she also played Vincent D'Onofrio's farmhouse wife in Men in Black, and that's just to name a few of the big films in which she's acted. But this is her second starring role, and as I said, the second film in which she has produced and written the story and screenplay herself. And the movie is about a washed-up country singer who turns prison guard who befriends the death row prisoner whom she is hired to guard. And this death row prisoner has 10 days left to live, and the two of them form an unlikely bond. And the death row prisoner is named Jackson, and he's played by a fine actor by the name of Peter Macon. And when I said that Shabon Fallon Hogan's character's brother is played by Robert Patrick, not only is he her brother, but he, whose character's name is Dwayne, is also the prison warden. So she kind of gets an in uh, during the early days of the pandemic when, where, as a washed-up country singer, she can't go perform in bars because they're closed by law. So she ends up taking a job as a prison guard with the state, and she begins to guard this prisoner, Jackson. And as the two get to know each other little by little, and Jackson is not very much of a talker, they begin to know a lot more about each other, and Siobhan Fallon Hogan's character, Val, begins to realize that Jackson's case and the crime for which he is sentenced to death is not as cut and dry as you would assume. And he's in prison and on death row for killing one person. And I could go on about my opinions about the death penalty, but this is a film that is pretty non-judgmental about the execution process. Although it seems to lean a little bit more based on the character's reaction in one way than another. And you could probably guess what that what that way is, especially considering that one of the main drivers of the plot is the bond that this prison guard and the prisoner actually serve. And the way it ends, I think, was probably the most dynamic, and I won't give that away, but it also seemed to be a, a lot very realistic compared to other films that are not based on true stories that are about death row inmates. And I don't know if this movie packs the same kind of punch that Dead Man Walking or The Green Mile would, for example, although Dead Man Walking was based on a true story, so that probably packed an even bigger punch and also won an Academy Award for Susan Sarandon. So that is a very, very tough act to follow. But I still love this film for what it was, and it's obvious that Shabon Fallon Hogan not only wrote this film with her in mind, but also wrote this film with a lot of heart and compassion. And this is one of those little films that could, in, in my opinion, and I was taken by it from the very beginning. And I also like the fact that it tied into the COVID pandemic honestly and actually showed people who were affected by it 
in a fictional setting because there it's interesting how some of the other films in Hollywood have been handling the pandemic. They some people or some forms of art want to act like the pandemic never happened and other people want to maybe overemphasize the dangers of the pandemic to an exploitative level. But here this movie finds middle ground and I liked the acting by just about everyone involved. And Peter Macon was definitely one of the actors that stood out the most. And I give the movie Shelter and Solitude my rating of a knockout. I think it is superbly acted. There are drama-filled moments that really squeeze your heart. And then there are other comedic moments that serve as great relief. And it's overall a high-quality movie on a noticeably low budget, but it's... It came out the same weekend as The Exorcist Believer, and that's a very tough movie on which on to, to debut at the same time. And I think that Siobhan Fallon Hogan did an amazing job with this film, in addition to everyone else involved. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Blind, or as it's known by its full name, The Blind, the true story of the Robertson family. And when I first saw this film pop up on my What's Coming Up Next feed, I assumed that when they were talking about the Robertson family, that they were talking about the family of Pat Robertson, who is the televangelist, the media mogul, and the religious broadcaster who died a couple of months ago on June 8th, 2023. And I was bracing myself because Pat Robertson was a very, very bad man, honestly. Uh, He was virulently homophobic, and I know a lot of people looked up to him, but yeah, the truth of the matter is he's just a bad man who just used theology to discriminate against other people. But regardless, he did, uh, Pat Robertson did come from, um, a dynamic American family. He was the son of the U S Senator, a Willis Robertson, but this Robertson family is not the family of Pat Robertson. It's the family of duck dynasty. And the movie, the blind is a biographical movie about duck commanders, patriarch Phil Robertson and the the hype behind Duck Dynasty um, has has died down significantly Duck Dynasty was a huge hit on A&E it was an American reality television series that aired from 2012 to 2017 and I, I have not seen a single episode of Duck Dynasty and the the Robertson family of Duck Dynasty have their ways about them. There are some ways that I admire. For example, they are very wealthy. I admire the way that they became wealthy. They found a niche 
and they filled it, and they filled it very well. But while they also became wealthy, they were also in touch with their humble roots, and I really admire that about them. Their politics and their views on religion, I wouldn't exactly say that I agree with them 100%. For example, one of the sons of the Robertson family appeared in a faith-based film that I saw called God's Not Dead. Uh, Reed Robertson is his name. And he not only appears as himself in a cameo, but he also appears at the very end. And he told the audience, breaking the fourth wall, get on your phones and text everyone you know that God's not dead. Well, I am a film critic and I'm a Christian. I absolutely believe in God. But if Reed Robertson were in front of me and told me to do that, I would point to him and I would say, no, I'm not going to do that because I am not a Jesus freak. Don't tell me to do that. I will believe in God my own way and you believe in yours. So obviously the Robertson family is very religious and they were behind the making of this film. But that's not the reason that the film falters, not only as a faith-based film, but also as a film in general. I mean, it does focus on the humble beginnings of Phil Robertson, as well as when he met his wife, Kay Robertson, and they got married, I think, almost a little too young. In fact, when Kay Robertson was a junior in high school, not only was she married, but she was also pregnant with her first child. While she was in high school, I mean, it all worked well for the Robertson family, but rest assured, I mean, even with their humble beginnings, they made quite a few mistakes and that is one of them. That's a mistake that would never fly today, but that's not the problem I have with this movie. The problem I have with this movie is not only being beaten upside the head with the talk about Jesus and how just committing yourself to the good Lord and getting baptized and telling everyone you know about his name is the way that will save your soul. And there are scenes in here that take aim at Phil Robertson's alcoholism. In fact, Phil Robertson, when he's an adult, is played by Aaron Vaughn Adrian, and Kay Robertson as an adult is played by Amelia Eve. And Amelia Eve, I actually thought was pretty good in this film, but Aaron Vaughn Adrian, my God, He took that drama and laid it on syrupy thick, particularly during scenes where he gets drunk and get and starts shouting at Kay Robertson. And, you know, she says, oh, you're acting like an animal, like a like a wild animal. And he says, I'll show you a wild animal. And it's campy. And it also sends a very dangerous message to people, especially of a younger age who watch this film, it shows them live with an abusive person. You can eventually change them. And all that will take to change them is believing in Jesus and worshiping him with all your might. Well, worshiping whatever deity you wish is a good start, but it's not everything. And I, I really feel like there are interesting parts of this film, in addition to the campy acting, that could have been emphasized a bit more, but instead they're kind of haphazardly brushed off. For example, Phil Robertson was actually a football star. He was a quarterback at his his school. 
And the, the movie kind of says sort of matter-of-factly that he quit football his senior year, even though he could have gone on to a prolific career in the NFL, and the backup quarterback that took his place at his school was Terry Bradshaw. So Terry Bradshaw looked up to Phil Robertson as a football player. Considering how many Super Bowls Terry Bradshaw won and how he eventually got into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, That's a very interesting story to tell. As a matter of fact, you could have actually made a movie on Phil Robertson's decision right there. I wouldn't say taken out the parts about the alcoholism, but at least shown what contributed to his alcoholism. Maybe it was based on that decision, but instead this movie kind of -of matter-of-factly says, oh yeah, he was a big football star. He could have gone to the NFL, but he didn't because he chose not to. And, you know, it, it just seems... Very matter of fact, because a lot of people who are NFL hopefuls who don't make it to the NFL are the ones who can't make it to the NFL, usually because they got injured. But that wasn't the case with Phil Robertson. And and this movie kind of yada, yada, yadas why he made that decision. And there are also some other parts of this film that were that were glanced over haphazardly. For example, there's another member of the Robertson family, Cy Robertson, who's a Vietnam War veteran, who's played here in adult form by Aaron Dallavia. And Aaron Dallavia, I think, does a decent job portraying Cy Robertson, but he doesn't portray the Cy Robertson that I know from watching the clips of Duck Dynasty that I have. There isn't really even a resemblance there. So The Blind is a film that also has the wrong name because I would expect a movie that's called The Blind to be about somebody who's literally blind, like Stevie Wonder, Jose Feliciano, or Ronnie Millsap. I would say Ray Charles, but you know they already made a movie about him. But instead, it seems like a stock name. Now, I do grant you that there's this concept of being born again or being reawakened religiously. I once was blind, but now I see. But when the movie is called The Blind and it's about more than one person who's not literally blind, the the title of the film feels like a stock film. So The Blind is a film that is one of those faith-based films that I saw that I didn't exactly laugh at it the same way I've laughed at other faith-based films, but I did look at the film very dubiously and critically. And honestly, it's going to appeal to people who might be fans of Duck Dynasty, but I I, I even think that they won't really get what makes the Robertson family of Duck Dynasty the great media stars that they were. You may not agree with their religion or their politics, but rest assured, they were very fun to watch. But none of that fun is here in the blind. And some of the most interesting parts of the Robertson family are largely absent or brushed over, which is why I give the blind, also known as the blind, the true story of the Robertson family, my rating of a flunk out. And also if you're going to call this movie, the blind, the true story of the Robertson family, you better be more specific as to what Robertson family you're talking about. Because yes, it's a faith-based film, but you don't want people to confuse the Robertson family of Duck Dynasty with the Robertson family of the 700 Club. You don't want to have that confusion at all. Because those are two drastically different families. Obviously, their religious faith is something they have in common, but 
One family is admirable for their work ethic and their business savvy, despite their appearance, and the other family has business savvy but are far more deplorable, in this film critic's humble opinion. But if you want to see the Robertson family of Duck Dynasty, go watch Duck Dynasty, either on the DVDs or on their YouTube clips. And they're probably going to have another reality show sooner or later, especially after Phil or Cy Robertson passes on. There's no doubt in my mind that that would happen. But The Blind is the bland. In, in terms of its storytelling. And it's too bad because they had a great subject. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next, or at least my first part of my final segment. And what's coming up next is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and or on streaming, if I have time to get to that, for the week of, in this case, October 15th through October 20th, 2023. And there is one film, I'm going to break a rule a little bit because there's one film that's subject to being released in some theaters on October 14th. And this movie is a documentary that's called Open Secret. And it is a riveting documentary, or so the synopsis tells me, about that investigates allegations of systemic racism and child sexual abuse in the New Hanover School District. I don't know what state that's in because the synopsis isn't giving me a lot of information here. But Carrie David wrote, directed, and stars in the film as herself. And it sounds like a very interesting topic. Obviously, systemic racism is kind of a mouthful of a word, or two words to say. The systemic, in particular, is a mouthful of a word. And child sexual abuse, both of those are very, very controversial topics. And I don't know if I'm going to be seeing this film because if it came out on October 14th, which is already passed in 2023, and I haven't seen it at my local theater, it's unlikely that I will see it. So, But I'm just letting you know it's presumably out there. On October 17th, which is a Tuesday, there's a film that is also presumably coming out in theaters, and I presume that this film is coming out, if it's coming out in a theater near you at all, it's coming out probably as a one-time event at Fathom Events or, or something like that, or by way of Fathom Events, I should say. And the movie is called F.U. Fentanyl Unlimited. And this film is a documentary. I'm not given a synopsis, but it's obviously about the fentanyl addiction epidemic and the people who have died by way of overdoses. 
And the tagline of the film, and man, what a tagline, is 150 Americans drop dead every day from this illicit opioid. That is another really hot topic, but I can't say whether or not this film is going to be released in a theater near me. If it is and I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. But October 20th is where a number of big films are going to be released in the theaters, and I would not be surprised to see at least three of these films in a theater near me. The one film that will undoubtedly be coming out in a theater near you to kick off Oscar season is Killers of the Flower Moon. This is the latest film for Martin Scorsese, and this is the first film that Martin Scorsese that has directed that has starred Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro. This is interesting because Martin Scorsese has directed a lot of films with Robert De Niro in them. I think all of them have been great. New York, New York was probably the film that Martin Scorsese made starring Robert De Niro that bombed. But I think that film and The King of Comedy, which also bombed, have been films that have uh, sort of reemerged in the public zeitgeist in the sense that they were bombs when they came out, but they're more appreciated now, especially since Martin Scorsese has a rich repertoire. Some of his movies has done better than others, but in my opinion, I don't think he's made a bad film. The, the quote-unquote worst film that he's ever made is The Color of Money, starring Paul Newman and Tom Cruise. But even then, I put worst in quotes because Martin Scorsese has to date not made a terrible movie in my opinion. But even though he's directed several films with Robert De Niro in them and other films, many of which are great with Leonardo DiCaprio, this is the first film where he's directed the two of them together. And Leonardo DiCaprio is top billing. And that really speaks for Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, repertoire that he's able to be listed above Robert De Niro. Not even Ray Liotta, who was the real star of Goodfellas, had that honor. But in addition to Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, this film stars Lily Gladstone, who I'm not actually familiar with, um, Jesse Plemons, who I am, in addition to John Lithgow, Brendan Fraser, and several other actors. So you got a lot of great actors right there that I just said. And this movie is about, I, I just told you, you know, the director in addition to um, the roster of actors, but this film is about members of the Osage tribe in the United States are murdered under mysterious circumstances in the 1920s, sparking a major FBI investigation involving J. Edgar Hoover. And Leonardo DiCaprio does not play J. Edgar Hoover in this film. Uh, I'm trying to see who plays J. Edgar Hoover, but I can't see it from the repertoire right here. And this movie is not only based on a true story, but it's also based on the best-selling book written by David Gran. And the screenplay was written by Martin Scorsese and Eric Roth. And Eric Roth has written so many screenplays to so many great movies. As a matter of fact, he won an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay for Forrest Gump. And in addition to that film, he has also written the screenplay to the new version of Dune. He's written the screenplay to The Insider. And I, I'd go over his repertoire too, but the point is, Killers of the Flower Moon looks like a very 
very promising Oscar contender. I'm not going to say whether or not it won because the year's not over yet, and I haven't seen all the films that could potentially be nominated for Oscars. But Killers of the Flower Moon may give Oppenheimer a run for its award money, and it's a film that, rest assured, I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on presumably next week's show. But this movie, man, runs three hours, 26 minutes. 206 minutes. So I really, really, really got to make my time to see this film. And I don't have a ton of time considering the jobs that I work and doing the show. But I will make time for Killers of the Flower Moon, rest assured. As for these other films, well, I'm going to give it my best. One of the other films that's going to be appearing in theaters at the same time as Killers of the Flower Moon is a movie that's called Dicks. The musical. Now, I may not be able to say that on my show, but um, it's kind of interesting. Dicks could mean a lot of things. It could mean two people who are casually named Richard, but chances are, considering this film is uh, a comedy musical and it's also about um, some people on the spectrum, it's uh, probably not about people named Richard. But anyway, that's the name of the movie, and I can say that on my show, I guess. Uh, just like I could say the TV show Shit's Creek, for example, because that is an actual last name, and I have to say the TV show before I could say the actual name of the show. But anyway, getting back to Dick's the Musical. It is about a pair of business rivals who discover that they're identical twins and decide to swap places in an attempt to trick their divorced parents to getting back together, which sounds identical to the movie The Parent Trap. And the guy who directed this is Larry Charles, who also directed Borat. So something tells me that this film is more than just a knockoff of The Parent Trap. But man, it's got a great cast. Now, the twins in the film are played by, well, yeah, apparently uh, they're played by two people who aren't related, I guess, which is kind of interesting because usually when people play twins, they're either actual twins or they're people who are playing two roles. But according to my sheet here, uh, Josh Sharp plays the character of Craig and Aaron Jackson plays the character of Trevor. I assume that they're playing twin brothers, but I don't entirely know. Don't take my word for that. But the other people in the cast include Nathan Lane, Megan Mullally, Bowen Yang of Saturday Night Live, Megan the Stallion, who I love for more reasons besides her music, Tom Kenny, and that's about it in terms of actors that I actually know. Oh, Nick Offerman, Megan Mullally's husband, is also in the film. So this is a film that looks to be a promising film. Will it be funny? Well, it's got some very talented cast members behind it in addition to the director here. But interestingly enough, the stars of the film, Aaron Jackson and Josh Sharp, also wrote the screenplay. So I'm interested to see this film. I hope I have time to see it in addition to seeing Killers of the Flower Moon. But if I see this film, I'll let you know what I think on presumably next week's show. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on October 20th is a movie that's called The Other Zoe. And The Other Zoe is about a woman by the name of Zoe Miller, who's played by Josephine Langford, who is a super smart computer nerd who is uninterested in romantic love, which is kind of unfortunate because she is very attractive. 
Uh, but she has her life turned upside down when Zach, the school's soccer star, gets amnesia and mistakes Zoe for his girlfriend. My, my, my. Beautiful people with problems. But uh, Zoe is played by Josephine Lankford, who I've seen in a couple of films. And the other people who star in this film include uh, Drew Starsky, who plays the soccer hunk Zach. Also, in terms of actors that I do know who are in this film, Andy McDowell plays Zach's mother. Patrick Fabian from Better Call Saul plays Zach's father. And Heather Graham plays a woman by the name of Paula. What connection she is to the characters of Zoe and Zach, I don't exactly know. And what's really freaky is, just on another subject, um, there were people I knew at a summer camp I went to when I was a kid who were brother and sister whose names were also Zach and Zoe. Quite a coincidence there. I haven't seen them in nearly 30 years, but I just thought I'd put that out there. But anyway, The Other Zoe is a film that I will see eventually. Will I see it by next week's show? I don't exactly know, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. But there's another film that's coming out that is called The Canterville Ghost, and man, there was a missed opportunity to get this film out on Friday the 13th. I don't know what people who put these films out are thinking when they don't put these out at the most opportune of opportune days of the year. There won't be another Friday the 13th for at least another five years. I'd have to check a calendar to see, but man, that would have been the ideal date to release a horror film, either in theaters or on streaming, but no, it didn't happen. And man, was that a missed opportunity. But anyway, the Canterville ghost is about an American family who moves into Canterville chase, which is a stately countryside mansion that has been haunted by the ghost Sir Simon de Canterville for 300 years. The movie features the voices of Toby Jones, Hugh Laurie, Freddie Highmore, Stephen Fry, and Imelda Staunton. And those are just the British voices that are uh, providing, the British actors who are providing voices for this movie. Uh, Some other actors in the film who are presumably American include Mira Sayal, Miranda Hart, and Emily Carey, amongst other people. But even though the animation doesn't look spectacular compared to the Disney Pixar films, especially the high bar that Elemental reached, which, just on another subject, Elemental did not start out particularly strongly at the box office, but it eventually made all its money back and more in its national and international release. And I'm glad it did because it is an excellent animated film and was animated so well. But to compare other films from lesser studios than Disney Pixar is a bit unfair, but I'm still willing to see The Canterville Ghost. I'd especially love to see this before Halloween, before or around the time of Halloween, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And there are other films that are subject to being released in theaters on October 20th, but I don't know if these films are going to be released in theaters near me or you yet, especially near me. One of them, another missed opportunity to release this film on Friday the 13th, is a film that's called Malibu Horror Story. 
This is about a team of paranormal investigators who search a sacred cave for clues in the unsolved disappearance of four Malibu teens, but then terror strikes them. The movie is directed by and written by Scott Sloan and stars Dylan Sprayberry, Robert Bailey Jr., and Valentina De Angelis. Another film that is uh, a horror film that's coming out on October 20th is a movie that's called Hayride to Hell. Now, the film's title already makes me laugh. Is this a comedy? It actually is. But, well, no, I I take that back. It's actually classified as a horror film, but the poster kind of looks comedic. But it's about a small-town farmer who exacts his bloody revenge on unscrupulous town folk who try to steal his land. The movie stars Bill Moseley, who's been in a number of Rob Zombie films, but this film is not directed by Rob Zombie. It's directed by Dan Lance. It may be produced by Rob Zombie, but I don't exactly know. But the film stars Kane Hodder and Graham Wolfe, amongst other people. It's a film that I think I might see as sort of a midnight movie. It might seem like a a good choice, but I can't guarantee that I'm going to be seeing it for next show. But if I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And I only have a limited amount of time left, so I'll just give you a rundown of the films that are subject to being released on Netflix. And there are a number of Netflix original shows that are going to be appearing. I'm going to skip right over those. Um, One of them is at one show, one movie that's going to be appearing on Netflix on Tuesday, October 17th is a film that's called The Devil on Trial. And this is a documentary, presumably about a really bad person who is on trial. And the movie looks to be American. And upon using reenactments and home videos, this dark documentary investigates the apparent possession of a young boy and the brutal murder that followed. It is directed by and written by Chris Holtz. And even though it's a documentary, it seems like one of those really chilling documentaries that would not be inappropriate to watch on around Halloween. Maybe not with your trick-or-treating children, but, you know... It's one of those films that looks very eerie and might be the people who really want to spook themselves for Halloween. And on Thursday, October 19th, there are actually a number of um, Netflix original movies. Oh, I'm sorry. Scratch that. There's one original movie that's going to be premiering, and the movie is called Crypto Boy. And this is probably about somebody who engages in crypto and it is, it's a documentary. Actually, I'm sorry. I take that back. It's a drama. One site told me that it's a documentary. That site was wrong. It is a drama that is about a young man who falls prey to cryptocurrencies allure and an entrepreneur's audacious promises of financial freedom. The movie does not star anybody that I know, but it stars Minnie cool Raymond Theory, and Jonas Smulders, amongst other people. So I might see this film. If I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And on Friday, October 20th, that's where I get a slew of movies that are subject to being released on Netflix that are Netflix originals. And there are five of them, and I don't have time to give you all of them, but one of them is called Disco Inferno, which is kind of surprising this was not a movie title that had already been taken. But actually it has been for a number of smaller films. 
But this Disco Inferno film is about a young couple who conjures a dark presence that hungers for their unborn baby as they prepare to burn up the dance floor at L.A.'s hottest disco. I don't know whether this takes place present day or in the 70s, but it sounds like a funny film. It's actually a short film, so just in time for Halloween, I guess. There's another film that's coming out on Netflix that is a Netflix original, and it's called Flashback. And this film is not giving me any information on um, my database. That's really too bad. There's a film that's called Flashback that came out in 2020, but I don't think that's the one. So it's, it is coming up on Netflix, but I don't exactly know when exactly it will. There's another film that looks interesting by its title, and it's called Old Dads. And Old Dads is a comedy starring Bill Burr, Bobby Cannavale, and Bokeem Woodbine. And Bob, uh, Bill Burr is more of a stand-up comedian than an actor, but it's a movie about three best friends who become fathers later in life, that's not unusual nowadays, and find themselves battling preschool principals, millennial CEOs, and anything created after 1987. Now that's a funny premise right there. This might be a film that I will see. I definitely didn't expect to see Bokeem Woodbine playing a dad of preschoolers. But then again, Bill Burr being in this film, he's a funny guy. It looks like a film that, based on the fact that Bill Burr is in it, has some promise. But then again, Bobby Cannavale is also very funny when he's in a comedy too. Bakeem Woodbine, I haven't really seen in a comedy, and it kind of hurts Bakeem Woodbine that he looks a lot like Dave Chappelle, and he's in a comedy, and he's not Dave Chappelle. But I will still give this movie a chance, and if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.